Good news. The Original Guide to Men's Health has just finished a brand new website, and you can find it online at theoriginalguidetomenshealth.com. Also, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. Our website has podcast episodes, resources, links to our brand new social media accounts, which can also be found in the episode description. Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to The Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. On this episode of the Original Guide to Men's Health, we will be reviewing dental health, general dentistry and family dentistry with Dr. Gary Burt, DDS. Dr. Burt attended the University of Washington School of Dentistry. He then did a one-year general practice residency at the University of Illinois Hospital in Chicago. It included rotations in medicine and anesthesia and focused on patients with complicated dental needs and medical conditions. He was then able to teach at the Boston University School of Graduate Dentistry and Oral Diagnosis and Radiology, and then went back to the University of Washington as a clinical professor in oral medicine. He's been in private practice for over 35 years, and subsequently to his initial training, he was able to complete a University of Washington two-year continuum in aesthetic dentistry. He went on to complete the Complex Restorative and Cosmetic Dentistry program at the Las Vegas Institute for Advanced Dental Studies. For fair disclosure, Dr. Gary Burt is my dentist. So who would I rather have as a guest and let you all know about aspects of dental health than the person who takes care of my dental health? Welcome, Dr. Burt, and thank you for joining us. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So I thought we would start with general dental health, and I know you do family dentistry and you know have years of experience. So I guess the first question is, when should people start with dental care? At what age? I recommend that people come in, bring their children in at age 18 months. And the reason for that is we implemented something called a happy visit. Thank you, McDonald's. And the idea was to just introduce the child in a non-threatening manner with mom and dad present. And essentially, we would take the appointment as far as we can. Sometimes the uh, child just gets tipped back in my hands from mom, and I can count the teeth real quick and do a brief oral exam. The primary goal is really just to introduce the child to a setting in a non-threatening manner and make mom and the child feel very comfortable. It's interesting, I diverge from the American Academy of Pediatric Dentists. They are recommending that the patient be brought in at age six months. And I think there's two points to that that is the only thing I can figure out with that. And one is there's communities, unlike the Seattle area where we practice, where there are non-fluoridated areas and the kids, even at a young age, would be prone to a type of decay. They call it nicknamed baby bottle caries. And oftentimes, the, unknowingly, the parents put the child to bed 
with a sugary substance is using the baby bottles kind of a pacifier those particular instances cause a lot of decay. And so you want something that you want to intervene early. I would look at it more as a chance to kind of educate the parents in terms of some things that they need to be aware of as the child's teeth start to come in. And number one is they start brushing them. As soon as the teeth come in, nutrition, good nutrition is important, calcium in the diet, that type of thing for formation of the teeth. And then fluoride, really two points on that. The beauty of the Seattle area is that the water supply is fluoridated. And so, but the key is to make sure that the child is getting some of that tap water in their diet, because we see a lot of filtered water, a lot of bottled water being used. And so you want the child to get the benefit of that fluoride by ingesting some of the tap water. And then in communities where they're not fluoridated and just east of us in the Pine Lake Plateau, they depend on well water their water is not fluoridated. And so we would recommend some sort of fluoride supplement like a vitamin for the child to take while they're um, living in an unfluoridated area. And then last but not least, regular professional visits, starting in my case at age 18 months. If you wanna go with the American Academy of Pediatric Dentists, they're recommending it six months. And then subsequent visits are based on how the uh, teeth are doing or? Exactly, based on how the teeth are doing, but really they're again, keeping things non-threatening. You really want to build a trust with the child and make them comfortable in the dental setting. And so that's really my goal with their visits. And then just only intervene when you feel that it's necessary, if you start seeing some decay or something like that. But beauty of the fluoridated areas, it's a miracle really, is that we're not just seeing the incidence of decay that my generation of child would have had. And so would they be in yearly thereafter or every couple of years? I usually bring them in starting at every six months after that. Good question. And then fluoridated toothpaste, are they adequate? Or do you really need the vitamin? You need the vitamin. Essentially, it's a chewable, so you have them chew it up and swish it. And the other part is that by ingesting it, they're also getting the systemic benefit of having it absorbed into their system and being incorporated actually into the matrix of the tooth. The way fluoride works is it actually gets incorporated into the enamel crystal. And by having it in there, it makes the enamel more acid resistant than it would be otherwise. So as we look at a general dental visit, what would generally be done when somebody comes in to see the dentist for a general visit? We would have them enter in. We would have them fill out a health history. Nowadays, in the age of COVID, we're doing a temperature scan and a quick uh, brief interview for um, the basic questions of COVID that everyone's experienced. I'd say in the last two months, have started backing away from being quite so aggressive with that introducing them. They would come in and have their teeth cleaned by a hygienist. And typically, if someone calls my office and say, I want my teeth cleaned, my goal really is to schedule them, let them get their teeth cleaned. We would typically update some screening x-rays for them. We would typically screen their gums, just kind of do a mapping of their restorations that are existing, answer any questions that they have. Then I would come in and take the input from my hygienist, do my examination, and make any recommendations that I would see that they would need. So a general dental exam is really more than just teeth. I mean, you're doing an inspection of the oral cavity and looking for lesions and other concerns. Correct. Part of what we want to do is thorough head and neck and intraoral soft tissue exam. They're again looking for lesions, ruling out things like oral cancer, but other things that occur, canker sores, human papillomavirus lesions, that type of thing. 
it seems some people are prone to dental caries or cavities, as they're referred to, and some people have teeth that seem to withstand the onset of a lot of things. What's your experience? So what happens here? Yeah, that's a good observation on your part. What I see is that you'll have siblings that some of whom will, you know, and this is a complaint, the sibling that gets a lot of tooth decay and takes wonderful care of their teeth versus the one that takes no care of their teeth and doesn't get the cavities. So obviously, I think there's genetics plays a strong role in people being prone to decay. I also think that, you know, we're starting to look at it more and more as a bacterial infection and the bacterial makeup of the mouth also affects that. And so nowadays, if you see someone that's actually getting a lot of tooth decay, there's interventions that we can make to change the bacterial makeup of their mouth to make them less prone to that. So that's a, you know, exciting area. And of course, prevention is a key. So as you start those early visits and your hygienist and you instruct the child and the young adult and then the adult who may be coming in for the first time in dental hygiene, what are the important aspects of dental hygiene in order to try to prevent dental disease? We've all been told to brush our teeth. The flossing is a big component. My hygienists are big fans of a, a new instrument called a water pick. It's funny because I remember this from a kid growing up. My parents played around with that and then it kind of fell into disfavor, but it's come back big time now in the last five years. And I think that it's been shown that it's helpful in removing debris in between the teeth, in addition to the flossing that we're asking people to do. So, you know, there's a number of different oral care products out there. So let's start with the toothbrush. You know, there was the argument, I think, that people shouldn't use a very stiff bristle because it can damage gums in a lighter or medium. Or what do you recommend as far as the correct toothbrush? As soft as possible, because we now live in an age where you're most likely going to have your teeth for your whole life. And so if we work with abrasive toothpaste and abrasive toothbrush, the stiff bristled kind, you run the risk of just wearing the enamel and creating it to be thinner over time, which is going to make the teeth look actually darker as it allows the inner part of the tooth to shine through. And so typically as soft as we can, one of the reasons that the hygienists and myself like the Sonicare toothbrush is the way it works, it generates kind of a sonic wave in the liquid around your teeth. And so you get deeper penetration and more cleaning. But the other thing, it has a stall factor on so that if you're pushing it too hard against the tooth, it'll stop running. That's a great point because people wonder how hard should I be brushing and how hard should I push the electric toothbrush against my teeth. So, yeah, well, I don't know if you had this experience growing up, but as a kid in school, you'd have the dentist come through and kind of coach in elementary school. You'd all get your toothbrush out and brush in, in class. You're really kind of taught to treat it like you were scrubbing a bathtub. I kind of urge my patients to think of it more as a massage. You really want to think of the toothbrushes kind of massaging, especially that junction between the tooth and gum. Then also the gum, should it be brushed? It should. Yeah. That junction between the tooth and gum, you want to keep that little crevice very clean. And brushing a tongue, useful? Yes. Actually, it's funny. I don't address that very frequently, but that's a good question. That's a good point. People that are interested in that, certainly brushing the tongue, because the tongue has little extensions on it that can collect food and debris and that type of thing. And by keeping that clean, you're going to get a fresher mouth from that for sure. I think we left out mouth or oral mouthwashes. So do those play a role? You know, some people are huge fans of those. I'm not one of them just because 
by the time we've loaded you up with brushing and flossing and then now water picking just to add a mouthwash in there. So I really, if people want to use it, I suggest that they find one they like the taste of. Because, you know, everyone talks about Listerine with its antibacterial effects, and that's great. But gosh, it burns. It doesn't taste that good. And so I really think that mouthwashes are a personal preference. You either like them or you don't. But I don't think it's necessary. And then uh, fluoride, fluoridated water in communities. Is that only for developing teeth or does it help maintain an adult's teeth? I actually do think it helps adults, but I don't think it's as necessary as it is for the developing teeth. So if somebody is living in a community that doesn't have fluoridated water or is living on a well, should they be taking fluoridated vitamins or? No, they wouldn't need to. I would just have them use a fluoridated toothpaste. And kids for sure. Kids should definitely have a supplement. Adults, I would not, unless we start seeing signs. And so there again, that's where you would customize a plan for them. And if you see signs where they're starting to have some breakdown on their teeth, then you would look at a fluoride supplement. Typically with adults, it would be a brush on gel, fluoride gel that you would have them put on at nighttime and in the place of a toothpaste. Excellent. And then, you know, you're looking again for evidence of oral disease, ulcers, bleeding gums, problems, growths. In general counseling to people, who have some perhaps habits that could be harmful to oral health. What are some of the things that you would advise people to avoid in order to take care of their teeth? We went through a phase where we were seeing decay in people that shouldn't be getting decay. You kind of outgrow that. Once you hit the golden age of 30, we kind of figure that you've outgrown the decay years. And so the habits that people do is that that we saw Altoids, as being a big thing, soda pop at work being a big thing. And then of course, chewing tobacco is another one that's even more serious because you can damage the, the mouth, the skin in the mouth and actually get cancer from that. So sugars, how about acid products, acidy type of products? Is that harmful or not? Some of the commercials on TV are making a big deal out of it. I don't think that people ingest enough acidic foods to make it become a clinical significant problem. So, you know, sucking on candy all day is not a great idea. (laughs) A lot of sugary beverages, not a great idea. The synthetic sugars, the artificial sweeteners. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be an issue. Yeah, we call them the non-nutritive sweeteners. Doesn't seem to be an issue because the bacteria don't process that. And smoking, also injurious to the tissues. Injurious, yeah, especially to the tissues. The oral tobacco really is a leading risk for cancer, oral cancers. I have a couple of patients that are still doing it and, you know, you make your recommendations. So probably the only caution that I throw at them is if they're going to continue to do it, that they don't just hold it in one place all the time, that they rotate it around the mouth. Yeah, it's a contact issue. And unfortunately, you know, there was a lot of young adults participating in sports were using oral tobacco. Professional baseball went through a period, I don't know if that's still a thing or not, where a lot of the professional baseball players were chewing and spitting. I think they moved to gum and sunflower seeds. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, sunflower seeds. <laughs> we'll take that. Okay with that. <laughs> so then just, you know, in your experience, any population of diseases that put people more at risk for oral issues. So is a diabetic more at issue or, you know, somebody who has disease X or anything that you can point out or think about? 
Good question. You know, one of the big issues we deal with are the senior citizens. And if you look at any textbook on this subject, most of the medications that they're taking cause xerostomy or dry mouth. It just, it changes the capacity of the saliva glands to work properly. And the damage that the dry mouth causes, you lose the buffering capacity of the saliva to buffer those acids that are created by the bacteria. So you see a lot of damage at a time with seniors when they are losing some dexterity, losing some eyesight clarity, and it just makes it harder for them to take care of their teeth. Diabetes you raised certainly makes them more prone to tooth decay and gum disease. Some of the cancer treatments and things like that, radiation treatment, chemotherapy, makes patients more prone to damage to the gums and to the teeth. So if we look at then intervention, somebody comes in and you find an issue, I kind of want to address two things. You know, what can you do as far as repairs? And people, of course, think of fillings. But before we do that, you know, there was a whole group of concern of patients who are fear the dentist. And I think dentistry has done such a great job of making it so comfortable to come in. But for those who still have dental fear, <laughs> let's go through that a little bit. That's very legitimate and it still exists, you know. Dentistry has come a long ways, and I think we continue to it, but we still are the butt of great jokes out there, and a lot of it is earned. If you have a patient that actually is fearful, the big thing is it's really all about trust, and I've had good experience with building trust, but it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, you have to take baby steps, and kind of like starting with the six-month-old, you have to just take people through steps, and it takes a little bit of time to make that investment, but I think it's worth it if we can get them over that hump. Now, that being said, beyond the trust building, there's also things that can be done. We have nitrous oxide, which is a laughing gas, which is a conscious sedative. You breathe it in at the appointment, breathe it out before you leave. And that kind of takes the edge off the appointment for people that have more severe fears than that. And, you know, they want to be totally out for their appointments. We have non-conscious sedatives that actually put people to sleep. And there's an oral sedative that can be used for regular dental treatment and where they can take a pill and then they sleep through their dental appointment. And the, the caution with that is that typically you need someone to drive you to and from the appointment if you have that type of sedation. So again, that's something that if somebody has severe dental phobia, dental anxiety can be prescribed and arranged. So not a reason to not see a dentist. I would urge people not to use their anxiety as a barrier to coming in and having dental care. I think you address it with your dental professional and find strategies that are going to work for you. And typically that would be customized to what your needs are. And some people require it for a little bit of everything that they have done in the dental setting. I have one patient, she only needs to be sedated for her cleaning. She does fine with her restorative appointment. Hmm. Interesting. So it's tailored and you meet the needs. And I will say, we'll give more information about this, but there was the old era of dental work with the old drills versus the new high-speed drills, sit-down dentistry, and the ability now with an experience of uh, somebody who maybe had some painful experiences shouldn't be. I mean, I know you're an expert at getting people numb. It's painless. It totally is wonderful. I mean, I mean, you're so great at it and it's like nothing. So I think most dentists have arrived at that ability to do that. The techniques now that we're using, they're amazing, and we can customize the length of the anesthetic that you have now so that we've minimized the amount of time you have to walk around with a numb lip after your appointment. The profession really has come a long ways with that. 
So if somebody does have some anxiety or fear, they should voice that to their dentist. They can even set up an appointment where they just come in and talk to the dentist before they even have anything done. Just come in and clear the air and let the dentist know what their concerns are and make sure that they feel like they're being heard before they even come in and schedule a procedure. So let's talk about what could happen as far as some restorative work that you do. Just kind of go through some general common things that are taken care of with a general dentist and then maybe some more problematic issues. Yeah, actually, one of the miracles of modern dentistry, this wasn't even available when I was in school, is that we now use light cured resins for the vast majority of all of our dental treatments that we work with. And what they are, the resin is comes, it can come in the form of a pit and fissure sealant that we use on children's teeth. If the teeth erupt and they have deep grooves in the molars, we actually can place that pit and fissure sealant. It's a clear resin or a white colored resin that fits right in and it flows right into those grooves and seals them so the bacteria can't work their way down inside those grooves where their toothbrush bristles can't reach and create a decay. We use a cousin of that for our dental fillings. It's called composite and it's a composite resin and that comes in different colors. And so if we have to do a filling on a tooth where we can remove the decay and then we replace that with a composite resin. And what's beauty of having it light cured is that we can shape it and sculpt it the way we want it and place it exactly where we want it and then shine this it's in the visible light spectrum, this bright light on the tooth, and it sets it 99% cured after just about 30 seconds. And so it's really changed things because when I was in dental school, we would mix toothpaste together. And if it was hot in the room, it could set really fast before you could get it in the tooth. Or if it was cold, you'd be sitting there waiting, twiddling your thumbs, waiting for it to cure. So the light has really revolutionized what we do. And then all of our cements that we're using for our porcelain work and porcelain's come a tremendous way now. It's much stronger, it's much more lifelike than what it was when I, it first came out. But we're using resin cements now to bond the tooth and those bond strengths now are becoming so strong that we can actually restore a tooth in porcelain and make the tooth as strong as the original tooth before it had the bad luck to have a cavity. And then we look at sometimes, you know, people are concerned about root canals and you know, dental disease in the gums where they need a periodontist. So go on to a little more advanced concerning issues beyond just fillings and is done in the general dentist office. Dentistry has multiple specialties. The beauty of what I like about practicing it is the general dentist can pick and choose how far they want to go in each specialty and kind of set those boundaries at which point they decide that something's complicated enough that they want to get a specialist involved. And so you brought up root canal. So what a root canal is, is it somehow damaged to the inner organ of the tooth called the pulp. And that damage can come via a deep cavity, trauma, falling off a bicycle, hitting your front tooth. And that trauma impacts the tooth, which cuts off the blood supply to that pulp organ and causes the nerve to die. And then the other thing we see more in adults is a fracture in a tooth where the fracture goes deep enough into the tooth to cause the nerve to die. And so what a root canal is, is the endodontist, the specialist, will go in and numb the tooth up, make sure it's good and numb. And then they make a little window through the top of the tooth into the pulp chamber. They clean out all that soft tissue inside, and then they seal that tooth. And then typically on a back tooth, we would form some sort of crown on the tooth just to protect the tooth 
basically a tooth that's damaged enough to require a root canal typically is damaged enough to require a crown. Now on front teeth, typically that's not the case because the way they're designed and the way the force that we put on them, you don't always have to put a crown on a front tooth that has had a root canal. And then other specialties, periodontics, you brought up earlier too, that's a specialist uh, perio meaning around. So that's the supporting tissues of the teeth. And that's gum disease is the leading cause of tooth loss in adults. We take it very seriously when you come into the dentist. So I mentioned for your initial examination, we would do what's called a periodontal examination. And that's where we use a little ruler that measures around each tooth and measures the space between the tooth and gum. So you measure the gum that you can see down to where it attaches into the tooth. So you probe into where you meet a little resistance and you take six measurements on each tooth. And we do that once a year and normal healthy gums probe around three to four millimeters and no bleeding. And so if we're getting a little bit deeper than that and there's getting some bleeding there, then we are worrying about inflammation, at which point we'll suggest some intervention. But periodontists will treat the extremes of that and anywhere from doing what's called a deep cleaning, where they'll go in and do the same thing that the hygienist does in the dental office, but they'll numb the area up that allows them to go deeper in the gum where those pockets are forming, to breed and clean that area out and get rid of those inflammatory products that are being created there. And in severe cases, they'll actually do gum surgery where they'll go in and remodel the gums to deal with that pocket that's created. So kind of going back to where we started, uh, preventive dentistry and good oral care, somebody who's neglecting their teeth, not brushing, not flossing, the risks they run are, in fact, these infections in the gums that potential carries. What happens? I mean, what goes on? Well, it's an interesting phenomenon because what you brought up earlier, too, was the idea that people have different experiences with dental disease and how they take care of the teeth isn't necessarily the predictor on that. But when you think about, I look at excellent dental health is really crucial to a high quality of life. And part of that's being pain-free, eating and choosing what you want without having to think about it. Beauty, intimacy, confidence, those type of values. And I look at it as being a choice. And so you bring up somebody that's not taking care of themselves as they should. Well, to me, that's a lifestyle choice. And when I was in residency in Chicago, it was pointed out to me that 2 million people in the United States have no teeth, have no dentures, and they're functioning just fine. They're eating and chewing. But I also think that they may be missing out on some of those quality of life factors that I mentioned before. So we want to keep our teeth. We want to keep them healthy. And we also want a good bite. So that brings us to the world of the orthodontist. We're going back to pediatrics and somebody who is getting in their permanent teeth and they're not aligned well. Why should they be aligned and why do we have orthodontic care? Well, you have to know that alignment is all man-made constructs, right? And so we're looking at beauty. And so what you look at is... The United States in particular, we like straight teeth, we like big teeth and beautiful smiles. And so that's usually what we're looking at, making sure that the patient has the space for the teeth to come in. And then when they bite, we want the upper teeth to be out over the lower teeth. And so the jaws don't always follow that prescription. Sometimes the upper jaw is smaller than the bigger jaw or vice versa. And so what you want to do is make those assessments early on. And you're usually making that in the early teens with a child. And they'll sometimes do early intervention. And my daughter, 
she had that situation where the upper jaw wasn't as big as the lower jaw. And so they did an early intervention and the good orthodontist now will actually do the early intervention with the idea that they can minimize the amount of braces treatment they put the child through in their teenage years. And their goal is really to be in and out in two years and just to make that perfect alignment and create that perfect smile. And that does lead to sort of the idea of cosmetic dentistry and having a nice smile, having white teeth, a lot of products that are sold over the counter for a white teeth, little background into cosmetic dentistry and what can be done. Mm-hmm. We've come a long ways on that. And I, I kind of addressed the materials before and how natural we can make those look. The whitening has gotten very sophisticated, even the over-the-counter products like things, products like the Crest white strips and things, they do work. They're a little bit tedious. I'm not sure that the bright white toothpaste and that type of thing are are a good thing. I'm still kind of waiting on that. My concern with that is that to create that whiteness, they've increased the uh, abrasiveness of the toothpaste. And we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, the stiff bristle toothbrush, abrasive toothpaste and causing wear on the enamel over time. And like I said, because we're going to have our teeth for our whole life, we want to try and minimize the abrasiveness that we create on those teeth. In terms of cosmetic dentistry and improving people's smiles, there's a lot. The the orthodontists are probably the first thing we look at in terms of alignment, but we can also mimic alignments with porcelain veneers where we can give the illusion of the teeth being straight, even though the underlying tooth may not be, and still maintain a regular healthy smile for people. And then missing teeth, this has been another revolution since I got into practice, is something called an implant, where it's a tooth analog that's placed where the tooth once existed, and it's allowed to heal for approximately four months, and then the bone totally encases it and locks it into place. And then you can treat it like a regular tooth, place a crown on it, and functions and looks like a normal tooth. So if somebody has lost a tooth either through disease and had it pulled or through trauma and has missing tooth, they can now have a complete smile. They can have a complete smile with a normal functioning tooth. And it's amazing. We're talking about success rates of up to 95%. It just does seem that we have a culture in the United States that people do value having a nice smile. And it appears to help in job market, job searches, employment. It seems perhaps as a bias, but it's the way that the uh, perception is. And so restorative dentistry and cosmetic dentistry really do help promote the ability of somebody to be successful. I have to agree with that. I I think that uh, having a healthy mouth, I think it goes to baseline confidence. I mentioned before intimacy, your relationships with the people close to you. But I, I think that's exactly it. And I just, you know, for better or for worse, we are judged by our parents, not just by our teeth, but our overall appearance, our hair, you know, all those things. And so I just kind of the way humans are, and we have this perception in the United States of what beauty is. And I think that in some ways, subconsciously, we're always trying to measure up to that. So let's look a little bit. You mentioned the aging population. As we age, things change. What should seniors be more aware of as they go through the ability to look after their oral hygiene and oral health? It becomes more important for them to keep up with their professional dental visits. And it really has to do with what I mentioned before. 
you know, seniors have done a great job and they're in the generation where they had to deal with dental disease much more so than today's kids. And so they have a much more extensive dental work in there and they've done a good job maintaining it until they start losing that capability to take care of it. And what I mean by that is as our eyesight starts to get worse, as our manual dexterity starts to slow, as our ability to get transportation to and from our professional visits may get affected or our mobilities, those create challenges for seniors to take care of their teeth. And so the more help they can get from their professionals, I think the better. And we'll sometimes in some cases increase the frequency of patients coming instead of twice a year, maybe increase the frequency of their dental cleanings to quarterly so that we can help them out with maintaining that health. And, you know, nursing home populations, I think, you know, they're at risk, may not be aware that they have issues going on, depending on mental situation. Correct. And I know that a lot of the quality nursing home situations are trying to create dental consultations for their patients in there. And just there again to help patients keep an eye on that. And knowledgeable nurses will help these patients with their home care as well. So if we were to just review some general warning signs that people should look for as far as issues, what are some of the things that people should be concerned about if they have changes? Well, certainly any type of pain or increased sensitivity to hot or cold or sweets would indicate some sort of damage to the tooth. Biting sensitivity, I see that in two forms. One is a very sharp pain that goes away when you release, and that can sometimes be indicative of a crack in a tooth. Kind of a dull, achy pain when you bite on it. A sign of either overuse from us clenching or grinding our teeth in our sleep. It can also be an early sign of something going on with the nerve of the tooth. The uh, bleeding gums. Gum disease is a tough thing. It's kind of dentistry's hypertension. You can have a problem and not know about it because it's an asymptomatic problem. And so the bleeding gums is kind of a good indicator, either just to normal brushing or flossing. If you're getting bleeding, then we want to take that seriously and reduce that inflammation. And you and I talked a little bit earlier this year about the relationship between systemic health and the chronic inflammation states in the mouth. And there's a body of evidence that's coming out linking damage to the gums to damage to other organ systems in the body, including the heart. And it seems to be related to those chronic inflammatory products, oftentimes caused by gum disease and gum inflammation that leach out into the rest of the body and then deposit themselves in other organ systems. Inflammatory markers, particularly, you know, if originating gum disease, it can affect the heart is uh, certainly one of those. So good oral care, again, has manifestations beyond just a smile. What about the patient who develops a change and develops bad breath or changes there? What kind of things do you look at? I'd say patients that experience really good dental health typically don't have bad breath. And so if they're experiencing that, that would be one of the signs of some sort of damage to the gums or the tooth that we were just talking about. The first step, if you notice that you have a problem or you have someone close to you that's saying, hey, you have a problem with this, I would definitely get a dental checkup, see your hygienist, get your teeth clean, get everything freshened up in there and just make sure that there isn't any pocket where we're developing some bacteria. You brought up the brushing of the tongue, which could be effective in that. And then the other thing I would really take a look at and quiz somebody on is if they're developing kind of a post-nasal sinus drainage type thing going on where they're getting some collection of mucus in the back of the throat, because oftentimes I see something with that as being the source. Many people are concerned about 
issues of cost in visiting the dentist because while there's general medical insurance, there is dental insurance, but a lot of people don't carry dental insurance or find that it doesn't balance out for them if they do. So what resources are there for people who are not able to generally afford dental care? What can they do? Yeah, thank you for addressing that. Yeah, the big elephant in any dental setting in the room is really the cost. It's an expensive thing. And now with inflation, having to add more PPE and personal protective equipment, surface barriers for a new airborne pathogen, you know, these costs, there's just a lot of pressures in any healthcare setting and dentistry is just part of that. Dental insurance is great if you have it, if it's provided by an employer, but it's not true insurance from the standpoint, it's essentially a prepaid program. What's interesting about it is that most of the dental insurance plans offer a $1,500 maximum per year. And that's great, but it hasn't really gone up probably in over 10 or 15 years. And the dental costs have definitely gone up in the last 10 to 20 years. And so what happens with that is that we're expecting dental insurance to cover the bulk of your dental treatment, and it most likely is not going to do that. You'll burn through the $1,500 with a couple cleanings and a few fillings in a year. But the beauty of the dental setting is when patients come in to see me, is that I want them to get caught up to the level of dental health that they're after. And once they're caught up, in other words, if you've taken care of damaged fillings, cavities, gum health, that type of thing, then they're pretty much in a maintenance mode. And those costs are really going to be pretty level going forward. But retired people don't have dental insurance. Self-employed people don't have dental insurance. And so what happens with that is that I coach people to set up their own plan. Because if you go out and buy an individual plan, you're never going to get back and benefit what you pay into it because what business would operate like that? And so you're better off self-insuring by setting up an account and then that amount of money that you would put into a premium, put into a, a dental savings account type thing that you're using for yourself and then just use that as you need. And hopefully at the end of the year, you have some left over. There are these things called the flex plans that you brought up with me and also the health savings accounts. And those are very good tools because you put in pre-tax dollars and then use that to pay for your, it's not just dentistry, it's other healthcare expenses. But you have to watch that. I think it's the health savings account that your employer puts in that the money that you designate go in, if you don't use it all up, you lose it at the end of that year. And that's the big thing. And you also brought up underserved populations where you absolutely can't afford dental care. And the beauty of the Seattle area is that we have a great dental school across the lake and they actually offer quality care at a reduced cost. And you're also benefiting the community by helping the future dentists hone their craft. And they're supervised by licensed, experienced professor dentists that do a wonderful job. And I initially taught at the dental school when I first moved back to the city years ago and helped those students back in the day. People who are listening around the world you know, should check and see if they really have no means to pay for dental care to look towards the dental schools or if there is a community-based dental care. I know King County here has a health fair and a lot of volunteer dentists go in and do what they can in the couple of days of the health fair for a population. I haven't used it recently, but we do have some children's clinics around the city of Seattle too that offer dental care at a reduced cost as well. 
And again, most dentists will work with their patients to do payment plans and reimbursement over time. So important thing is for people to get care. Issues for you know resources, again, we mentioned to look for dental schools, but what else can people do or look online to find some resources as far as how to find a dentist? How to find a dentist? That's a very good question. Your best bet is going to be to talk with a trusted friend or a trusted family member and get a referral, find out what it is they like about their dentist and find out if they would recommend that person to you. And I think that's probably your best thing. If you're moving into a city where you don't know anybody, I always coach people to look online and look up a periodontist that's close to your neighborhood. And periodontists, as I said earlier, are dentists that have gone back to school for additional training to treat gum disease. And the good news is they know who the good dentists are in the neighborhood. So I would call their office and find out who they would recommend as a general dentist for you. And the reason is, is that periodontists, because they deal with complications in the gums, they know which dentists are being very careful and taking care of those gums because they see those patients. Good advice. And any other online resources that you would recommend? Like, is there a dental association? There is actually. The American Dental Association has a state association and then local affiliates called, in our case, we have the King County Dental Society. And so that actually is a good resource. I'm glad you brought that up. That's also a resource that you could call and get a referral in your neighborhood. We went over looking for signs and symptoms that would urge somebody to get to the dentist, but routine and regular dental care, prevention, and good oral hygiene are all keys to maintaining good oral health. I think so. It's the same thing that I uh, would tell a new parent who's bringing in their 18-month-old for the first time is that, you know, brush the teeth. And as an adult, you get to floss and water pick them as well. And good nutrition. And then the regular professional dental visits. Any other thoughts as we wrap up? I really appreciate this. This is a wonderful information for our listeners. Thank you. I took the liberty of writing down what I look for from our ideal dental office. The best dental practices, they tell you how you are doing. They don't talk down to you or make you feel guilty. Really, because by showing up at the dental office, you're already in the top 50% of dental patients in the country. They tell you what you need, nothing more, nothing less. They never coerce treatment. And they offer you optional dentistry, whiter, straighter teeth that we talked about, better materials in your mouth. But remember that these are elective choices that you get to make. Well, Dr. Gary Burt, thank you for joining us today and sharing information insights on good oral hygiene, dental health, and how to keep a nice smile. So thank you. My pleasure, Dr. Pellman. It's wonderful talking with you. This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, Ph.D., Music for our show is San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. David Whiting. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. 
For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at theoriginalguidetomenshealth.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.